Identity Talk. I'm your host, Jana Lopez. Thank you for sharing your time with me. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about uncovering meaning about who we are and how we come to see ourselves. Words and identity are my life. I'm the author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. I teach online writing workshops called Write About Now and offer one-on-one transformative coaching sessions that break you through to deeper clarity and connection with yourself through a guided process I call See-Through Words. When it comes to navigating identity funky junk, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope mixed with humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Well, good morning. Welcome to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. And I'm excited to have with me one of my favorite people as my conversation confidant for the morning. And her name is Farrah Gold. And we've known each other, I would say, over the course of 20-something years. I was trying to figure it out. Uh, When I used to do PR consulting, I worked for an organization called Avamir Health Services, which is a senior housing company that had the full spectrum of services from independent care to assisted living to dementia care. And I met Farah when I was working on a project for Avamir, she was a marketing consultant that was helping them. And so from that time, a birth of a friendship that has traversed many pathways was born. And there's so much to talk about here this morning. The thing about Farah today is she recently received a pretty substantial medical diagnosis, which I'm going to let her tell you about, which has brought us to some very deep and real and meaningful conversations, even though we were having them before the diagnosis. I wanted to talk to Farah today about what it's like to receive such substantial news related to your health and to know that something is changing and then what what she's discovering along the path. So I'm going to let her tell you more about what she learned. Tell us about what you you recently discovered. Well, in a nutshell, you know, I was going through everything all of us were as a global community with the shock of COVID over a year ago. And I was traveling. Um, I think the last time I physically got to hug you and kiss you and hold your hand was February of 2020. And then, of course, COVID hit. Um, And during the sequestering, um, my husband, um, that's seven years older, said, Farah, why don't you just retire? You worked so hard. Well, 59 years old, and I will be 60 on March 3rd. So this week, I'll be 60 years old. So over the course of the last 12 months, I discovered when I was asked by my husband to retire, he noticed things about me that he hadn't seen because I'd been traveling so often. And it was related to my memory. But because I've worked the last 20 years, as you said, uh, Jana, in seniors housing as an executive um, leader and advisor to the management companies and investors, I knew enough that this wasn't normal. And it wasn't just COVID. And it wasn't just that I was upset about the change in my life, like we all were. So I called my doctor. And fortunately, I have women doctors. So I hope that whoever's listening is going to glean a lot of information because I'm going to make sure every word I say has value. And I had purposely um, found female doctors over 15 years ago when Harvard had presented hard evidence research that said human outcomes are much better if you have a woman doctor. And I found that to be true um, over the course of my healthcare the last 15 years. There isn't anything that my doctor has ever heard me present where she wasn't willing to find a cause. And so she took my husband's comments about my memory loss seriously and referred me to a 
fantastic nationally recognized um, woman neurologist here in Dallas. She had been at UT Southwestern for 15 years, but started her own brain institute. And I am so blessed. So if anyone's listening and you feel you have something that's not right with your memory or your brain, I can only advise you that it's a rabbit hole, especially for women. One of the incidents that really signaled you so people can see how sometimes seemingly small but substantial these things are, is that a friend of yours was talking to you about a trip that you had taken. I think it was to Napa and saying something like, remember when we did something and you had no recollection whatsoever of that time or that trip. And that was something that signaled. Well, I kept that to myself. It was one of those secret, I can't believe I can't remember, but it was subsequent to that incident when my husband talked about a Thanksgiving in 2019, where the family all went to a historic site here in Texas, and there was absolutely no memory. And that was when, on top of his own observations, I said to him, we got to call the doctor. And he said, I think we need to, too, because I argued with him to the point he had to pull out photographs. And I still, to this day, cannot remember any of that trip. So yes, Jana, the trip to Napa with the dear friend, I, I minimized, I laughed, I made a comment to her, we must have drank a lot of wine, she giggled and said, well, we did wine tastings the whole day, but I had adapted, I, re- I had to recognize over the course of these tests with neurologists that this has been going on for a long time, and I had found a way to adapt to my own memory loss and a lot of the other symptoms by, you know, hiring Ubers to drive me and having supportive uh, staff. I had, you know, running my own business, I had people working for me. So I didn't have to do the tactical execution of, of the advisement that I was offering. So my high level executive strategy is still there. Um, but this neurologist took me down a path that every person and mostly men usually get women um, usually takes years for them to have the types of tests I have. So I'm grateful. I had a woman doctor who takes all of her patients seriously and her philosophy is don't treat symptoms, get to cause. So over the last seven months, I've had hundreds of tests, but the definitive cause now um, was after a four day hospital Um, epilepsy clinic where she determined that I've had since I was the age of three uh, temporal temporal seizures and those seizures because they were untreated um, were the reasons that she could see the brain loss of my brain tissue and my temporal lobes and my hippocampus and she kept saying to me over and over are you sure you haven't had a severe injury are you sure you didn't have a high fever So my lovely 81-year-old mother is still alive, and we went back through my history, and I had the measles at the age of three. So I didn't have the MMR back then in 1964, um, and I had 107 fever. And then the following year, at the age of four, I was hit by a truck and had a major head concussion, head injury. So those two incidents, my neurologist said, were probably the triggering events that started the seizures. And I always thought seizures were a grand mal, you know, and someone falls on the floor and loses consciousness. And she said, well, you may have had them, but you, they were never witnessed. And she said, and you certainly can't remember them. The brain damage is done. Nothing will be restored. I'm going to continue to take Aricept for the other parts of my brain that are also showing signs that are working so hard because of the untreated seizures. My brain tried to adapt. So my language centers, my ability to use words and still talk is, as she said, a very deep neuro pathway. So hopefully I won't lose my capacity to speak, but the prognosis is that it's better than just a traditional frontotemporal dementia, which is what I have but it's because of the seizure disorder. So now they're treating the seizures as well um, with medication and possibly surgery, brain surgery um, in a year or two. 
if they can't stop the seizures. So they're still happening. They're just not happening hundreds a day. And I had every symptom once they gave it to me. I'd had all these symptoms my whole life. And my mother, as she said, she just said, I thought you were a sensitive, special child. And teachers passed me through classes. A classic symptom is calcolexia. So my temporal lobe was so damaged, even in, by the first grade, that I could not calculate numbers. And nowadays, teachers are taught that that child should go to special education, be tested. Um, but my doctor's like, they didn't have any of that in the 60s. So I was basically passed through math. Um, I was a, another symptom of temporal seizures is like obsessive writing, drawing, drawing and writing. But I always had a sketchbook as a child, doodling, doodling, drawing. So my mom thought, well, if she's an artist, so she threw me into art classes. So I look at my life now at the age of 60 and think, look at what I made out of my bag of lemons. I made a great life for myself, but I also am grieving right now for the life that I could have had. And I'm grieving for the neglect. It's hard to use those words, but they're true. That, as my mom says, she was a young, stupid mother. And she says it. But it doesn't give, it doesn't give me any comfort. And it's hard to recognize that no one helped me. And the seizures have created all my memory loss. So I'm functionally disabled. Um, fortunately, I have a very supportive husband and family. So I'm not filing disability. I'll be social security eligible in two years and it takes two years to get on disability. So I'm not gonna go on disability, but I can't drive anymore and I can't use a stove or an oven. All of my sensory capacities are totally diminished. When I have tried to push through, I know, you know, I tried to attend and I loved your beautiful writing course, but the doctor explained that when I'm looking at a screen, like right now, I'm just focused on you, but I could see all the kind of Brady Bunch people in the screens and what was happening is my brain was seizuring. And that was another reason I couldn't sleep after the course. And so I had all these symptoms again. But until the neurologist explained, you have to not trigger them. So now I know when an aura happens, um, deja vu, I have severe nausea, but I've had it my whole life. <laughs> so my mom would say, you just have a sensitive tummy. And so now I know when I'm having a seizure and I try to just be very quiet and close my eyes, which is really created a huge change for who I was as a human being. I want to talk about pivotal experiential moments between us that I feel completely blessed for and grateful to that, that we had a chance to experience. So I teach creative writing. Uh, I do a workshop and I also work with people one-on-one -on -one to find ways to untangle emotional knots through words. Farah had come to me. She had been taking my Tuesday night creative writing class, which was free and online. I started that after the pandemic, right in March, to give people a chance to find community, give voice to the fear. So Farah had joined that class. And each week, she would show up very brave, showing up for herself. And these words would find her. And we started working together one-on-one, -on -one, trying to untangle some emotional knots. And Farah had wanted to write a book. And so we would spend each week talking and exploring. And Farah would show up with these beautiful words and these stories. And so part of what I do is to help people navigate these canals, these emotional canals so that they can untangle some knots. Well, we had started talking about things uh, that were going on in her life. And each week I give an invitation to write into something. And the idea of having her explore what animal she was. And we had discussed, there were mm. these animals. She had mentioned an eagle and an armadillo and most of the animals she had mentioned were animals of prey, like, or 
protection or something that keep them very defensive defensive perfect word thank you and so I asked her I said what animal if you were going to be anything that has no protection whatsoever what animal would that be she had come up with this idea of a rabbit and this is really interesting to me this is why I do the work that I do because I think our words tell us who we are and so I help guide and navigate and magnify those, those things. So we started exploring this idea of the rabbit being a rabbit and what that felt like. And it took Farah on this really interesting, emotional, creative journey where she was writing about all these things that make her a rabbit. And what was so amazing and beautiful and interesting was that after months of working on this was when you got your diagnosis. Yes. And so having done all this work about feeling vulnerable and exploring and being the rabbit and sitting with the rabbit and all that, you mm -hmm. got this diagnosis and it was like fucking A, like it prepared you. <laughs> so talk about that because that is really what was beautiful. You know, if anyone listening, what I love about Jana's divination because she is truly an inspired soul. And as she uses the word invitation, she knows that she can't tell any one of us to take an action that we're not ready for. But she invites us into a possibility with words. And as you and I had talked about and, I, and how I perceived it, and it was really brilliant for me, because after years of therapy, because I knew that abuse and neglect had happened in my family and I needed to reconcile how does an abused child still love their mother because it's the only mother we have and how do we love the mother um, but the way that I had become a human in this lifetime was to be a highly defended creature I was a justice seeker I was Wonder Woman and I had a very shield around my body including fat and I wear scarves all the time and it's more behavioral, but it's a symbol, I think, to protect myself. And when she invite you invited me, Jana, to write about an animal or a creature in a voice that was not my own and that find that, that creature's voice. And when I could, and you and I both, and so you, you were giving me too much credit because I literally couldn't come up with an animal. I kept saying, what about a ladybug? And you go, Fira, it has, it has a shell and it flies away. I want you to speak in a voice that is not your own. And all the animals that you pointed out, I kept finding and seeking were the ones on my superficial conscious level I identified with. But when you and I both within a, I think within hours of each other said, what about the rabbit? I knew that I could find, and I, and I loved the exercise because then I did find myself because you have always been a great coach and advocate for every word that comes from my being. It is me and it is my being. And I found my wonderful, soft place of my genuine little Farah, the little girl that was neglected and was abused and couldn't defend herself. And so then when the doctors said to me and have continually said, now you cannot overfunction, Vera. You can no longer do for other people. You must have other people help you. Having that preamble to that hard scientific information and being able to sit in a place that I needed to find myself was priceless therapy. There wasn't a psychologist I've seen since I was 13 years old that could help me find myself. And that is the beautiful gift that I've really gained through your, your soul coaching. And, you know, I'm making it sound really metaphysical. Some people that are listening, please don't be afraid. You know, Jana is not a witch, <laughs> and she, but she's a wonderful goddess of of word finding in the moments and the invitation again is for you as an individual if you're listening to choose to step into 
your own possibility. And this is a journey this last year filled with tremendous shock and horror and grief. But without the tools I gained through my coaching and my one-on-one with you, Jana, I truly do not believe I would have been prepared to now enter into this future possibility for myself. So as you know, I'm looking to find the right assisted living for my needs um, so my husband can have a life and just love me. And hopefully Jana and I will find our way. I want to find my way back to my words again without it hurting my brain. And I've got so much that's in the can, as Jana will say. She's she's the she's the steward of my writing now because I can't operate. This is my husband's computer, and I can't um, sequence and operate any machinery anymore because I can't remember how to get things open and close things down. But I'm just you know waiting through to be that rabbit. May mean I have a shorter life and may mean I'm very vulnerable, but I'm also soft and I'm also still really lovable and I still have something to offer others. And to be able to find that voice through the invitation you gave me has been such a blessing. I think about all the things um, that you have to grieve and everything that you have to give up and the possibility of an imminent death looming like we've talked about you know you've already started giving away things because you know you received you know they had said maybe a couple of good years think through and be with this idea of saying goodbye to everything every day yes and to be able to gift like to you I found treasures that had meaning to me that I knew as I give them away just like we all you know the old saying if you love something you let it go and but I truly have been able to find these beautiful souls in my life that all of the acquisitions that I tried to use to fill my void, you know, cause again, I, I lived an incredible life. I had a very dynamic life filled with lots of love and loss and travel. And um, I created an amazing career and business for myself all around concepts and words and strategy. And it was all around service to others, but I also was a huge spender. I bought a lot of very fine things and acquired things that I thought bright, shiny objects that would distract me. So it's been so wonderful for me to be able to write a letter with each object, gift it. I found something else I'm sending to you (laughs) um, because I have to give these things away. I'm moving to a small apartment. My husband and I are selling our custom home in a country club Um, golf community in Texas and it's likely unfortunately he was recently given news from his doctor because he has Raynon's disease in his hands and feet and our original plan was to move to Connecticut so I'm telling you some news you haven't even heard yet but his doctor said you can't live there six months a year it'll be too difficult on your vascular system so now we're I'm looking at San Francisco to move back to San Francisco where I had lived over 10 years and my son Adam has a forever home there and I know I have to live near one of my children to offer my husband support but also for me we need to have that advocacy look at my 2200 square foot beautiful custom home for two people it's too much room and I can't bring all these things with me but now I'm finding a home for everything. And that feels really good to keep giving and giving and giving. And as I let go and release things, I'm able to enter into, well, just the catharsis of human nakedness. You know, all of the times I've had to take all my jewelry off and be totally naked in these MRIs, hours upon time. And also for procedures and and to have to sign waivers if I die, to now know with my seizure disorder, um, sudden death is a part of it. And so, okay, how will I be ready? In every single moment, I still have a breath. How will I be present? And, you know, luckily, you know this about me. In the search for my own meaning, I was a metaphysical student. So from earliest stage, luckily, my mother that I've referenced was a very metaphysical. So I've been, 
you know, I have a degree from Texas Christian University. I was Jewish, practicing Jewish, raised my children. Um, I'm a practicing Buddhist meditator. And so to stay really present in that metaphysical space of I am not a body, I'm a soul that has having an earthly experience. And my soul will pass through this body. And I want to be conscious for that death. And I want to be conscious for my rebirth. Because I want to come back. I have more to contribute. I want to hopefully be connected to my child. I said, I'm coming back as your granddaughter, as my granddaughter. So we giggle about it. And I've given beautiful jewelry that I enjoyed and loved to Adam to give to my granddaughter. And he's like, well, what if you're still alive? And I said, well, then I'll come back as her daughter. So we giggle about it, but at least I can make meaning of this. And I recognize how thousands of families I helped over the years um, struggling in senior living, if they don't have any of these tools, like the tools you offer as a writing teacher, then they are truly suffering and they're in deep, I'm still in deep pain. So I don't want anybody to think just because I put lipstick on today and I said to Jana, this is it. This is as dressed up as I've been and it makes me feel good, but I'll take a long nap this afternoon. This will be as much as I can do. Most humans will have such deep pain and suffering. Um, Certainly I've thought of killing myself. It would be easier for my family, but that's not my soul's path. I'm going to complete this human experience to the end. Now I've advanced directives, so I'm not going to have a feeding tube or a vent. And all of those things are part of this human experience that this culture in America never talks about. You know, in Amsterdam, death is a huge part of life. And they talk about it a lot in in assisted suicide and, and actually planned suicide is a culturally accepted um, idea. But in our society in America, we tend to still filter everything as Puritans through this horrible lens of suffer through and suffer in silence and use your willpower. Well, I'm not doing any of that. I'm decided to just surf and body surf through it. And wave upon wave of grief comes. But then I also have a low tide and then a high tide. And in every moment that I can still breathe, I still have something to contribute like this conversation. You know, my hope is that whomever's listening will understand that no matter how much pain they're in, to find teachers and guides like Jana that can gift you the opportunity to relieve your suffering. To me, that is the Bodhisattva way. And Jana, you're a Bodhisattva, whether you like it or not. (laughs) Yeah, I just don't know what to say. There's so much there. Um, I know, sweetheart. It's, It's fascinating for me now to be on the other side of this table. When I've been on the other end of receiving other people's news, I've felt deep grief for them. But now that I'm on this side of the table, I can tell you I'm stone cold sober in a way that's so viscerally alive that I would say I'm more alive now in the presence of imminent death. There's a vitality to it. There's almost a bit of a high to it, which is a weird notion, but I can share that I am not afraid to die. I'm absolutely clear that I have a life of of my soul beyond this body and that's okay. Are you afraid of losing the memories? My um, long-term memories are incredible. My short-term memories, when I think of my month in Japan with my husband is gone. I can see the pictures. We were there together. I can't remember anything. I can remember what it made me feel. It made me feel great. We, we were first class. We, would, we had my Marriott and American points. It was awesome, but I don't remember any of the details. And I see the photographs and I can see my picture, but I just remember what it made me feel. I can't remember that it was a month when Donald says, oh no, this was here when we were doing something near Kyoto. When he starts to say this to me, I go, 
I can't deal with this. I can't deal with it because not because I can't deal with it because of you, Donald. It's because my brain can't. So that's the other part of this. I am stone cold sober because if my family or my friends or whatever doesn't understand me or what's happened, I can only describe what's happening, you know, but I can remember like my best girlfriend from high school is coming over for my birthday on Tuesday. We're both 60 years old. She's 60 today. We've always giggled. I remember the day I met her, viscerally remember what the hallway smelled like in high school. So the doctor believes I'll always have these long-term memories, but anything in the last five to 10 years is going to probably, definitely the last five, I hardly remember anything. I mean, I can remember that I did see you in February, but I know there was a lot more happening in that time, and I don't remember anything else other than I saw you. And you would have a better grasp on what did we do together and where did we go? And I think we did do some things together. So there's that weird part of my brain that's like, there's something missing, but I don't know what it is. So I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but I have, I've tried to just let go of what it means to see something again. So, I mean, my memory, I'm finding joy in watching movies that I can't remember and so my husband will go, look, we just started it and we'll have to finish it tomorrow. And I'm like, well, I probably won't remember what we just watched. He goes, don't worry, we'll, we'll just start it again. And I said, thank you. So I'm getting a lot of joy of sort of rerunning things, if that makes sense. And I'm finding joie de vie. Like my husband's like, what do you want for lunch? I'm like, don't make me make a decision. You know, you could put a dog food on my plate and I'll eat it you know so so now it's letting go of control and that was something that was very unfamiliar to me but for me to try to grasp and control and make a decision the doctor said when I start to feel the pain you have to step away from it because that's going to trigger a seizure so now that I'm learning to adapt to what does it mean I get to go into and enter more into the rabbit more into the rabbit and be totally vulnerable, not know where my food's going to come from, not really know, but trust that it's all going to be there for me. And luckily, as you and I discussed, I mean, I was a huge planner. I was a highly defended person. So I bought long-term care insurance when I was 38 years old. Even the agent was like, I don't even want to sell you this. I feel bad about taking your money. And I said, well, I had four friends die of cancer. They were all like 40 to 42. And I said, I saw what it devastated their family. And then I went into seniors housing and I saw what the financial ramifications, I just didn't imagine for myself. Both my grandmother and great-grandmother died at 88 and 90 and they both had strokes and they only had short-term skilled nursing stays. But from my perspective, six months in skilled nursing was an interminable amount of time and it was horrible. And so I knew, well, this insurance will be there for me when I'm 88. My husband's seven years older. So we had made an estate plan all around when he dies first. So that's all having to be restructured so that if he does die first, because I can't handle money and I closed all my bank accounts, all my credit card I've prepared, I called all of the credit reporting to close and freeze so no one can steal my identity because that's the last thing my family wants to deal with. But all that money from his death would have to go into a health care trust for me. So these are all the details of life and death that most people avoid. But again, because I'm stone cold sober right now and my nature is to care for others, including my family, I'm like, we're going to get this stuff done now. And you're not, we're not going to avoid it. We're going to do it while I still have a breath in my body. Um, and that's felt good. How does it feel to know that the words that are just placeholders for feelings, right? Those words are, are placeholders for feelings. And sometimes they may not even be exactly the mirror of that feeling, but, but it's all that we have. It's the best that we have. You've been sending me cards I get beautiful cards from you a lot where you express yourself and you use your words and you talk about why you still have a breath. It's also why you still have your words. 
you know, you've not been shy to use them or share them or express with them. And that's something that I feel is so important yeah. to finding our way to ourselves through our words and through specifically writing words, not just the words, the invitation is to try to use those words in the process of exploring to find those words is where we find ourselves. Would you say that's been true for you? Absolutely. Well, and Jana, as you may know, my neurologist has literally prescribed 10 hours a week of uh, cognitive and speech therapy. While those therapists have been helpful more on a mechanical side, they were thrilled to know that I was working with you. And I have to get back to finding a way without it hurting my brain. And I think you and I are trying to explore kind of how can we fragment and cut that filet mignon up into tiny little bites. I do think my letter writing, my card writing was in my nature, but now it's taken a new thread of real personal meaning. But again, it's absolutely necessary. They've said, if you don't use it, you will lose it. And so, um, you know, my tendency right now has been to put noise canceling headphones on all day and not talk to anyone. Um, but that's not what they want. The doctor's like, if you do that, it will continue to get worse. And again, my biggest fear is to not be able to tell someone how I feel, whether I'm angry or I'm hungry or I'm thirsty or I'm sad um, or no, don't do this to me. My biggest fear is I won't be able to communicate. And I now see why so many of the hundreds and thousands of people across my career in memory support would be screaming and would be banging their head and would be wanting to escape because he had no other way to communicate. And so I'm trying to now learn some new forms to communicate, keep my words. Now that we know it's temporal seizures that created the brain damage, I can keep that skill as long as possible, but it, it's gonna require a coach like you. It's gonna require continuing to stay in practice around my words and, um, my journaling, I, I haven't spent as much time just because we've been in so much movement around the diagnosis and around my next steps and around where I live, that once I do move to San Francisco to my supportive care, I feel like I can take a breath and then really immerse myself into my therapy and just make it about me. But I'm still tethered to making decisions that are best for my husband and my family and I'm but I'm almost there to letting that go you know uh, I'm afraid it's a, that is a fearful part to let truly let other people make decisions totally for me so I keep saying to my family while I can still participate in the decision let me tell you what I want and that has been very helpful as I let go and let go and you know letting go of my ability my 815 credit score letting go of all my credit cards letting go of my capacity to have financial independence but i don't need it because i can't manage it and i don't need it because i don't want someone to steal it and have an identity theft that would create a bigger problem for my family so being able to evaluate those pluses and minuses hurts my brain, but it's what I have to do. And so there are those, you know, I talk about in life, you know, while I don't like flossing my teeth, you know, a great hygienist once said, well, only floss the teeth you want to keep. And I was like, well, I want to keep them all. She's like, well, then floss them all every day. And it was one of those great kind of basic philosophies around, you know, tend to the things that you love, tend to the things that mean something. And so right now I'm having to pick what are the things that you have to have? And I don't really have to have much, you know, except the capacity to tell you how I feel and hopefully to be able to say yes or no. And so that's going to require continuing to keep my words sharp. Uh, you've always been very 
expressive with your words and very honest with your words. That's something I can go back to when I look at all the years of all of our conversations. Every conversation we've had has always felt honest. There was never any pretense. A lot of people struggle with being honest with their words to themselves, let alone to each other. And I can't imagine the extent or the realm or the scope of conversation you've had to have with yourself. And I'm talking about the kind of conversation that you and I have worked on and that I teach. It's not just passive things, jumbling airspace in your mind. I mean, right. it's a very engaged process. The way I teach having a conversation with yourself is, uh, I don't know, there's probably there because there's other people that are maybe doing it or with how they describe it. I'm sure it's not original, but it's my understanding of what that means being in conversation. And so for you to grapple with and explore and be present for and show up for yourself in this way, I can only imagine the type of strength and connection and conviction that would take because I have not had to deal with quite that scope of things but we all deal with our grief of our own changes in our own way but this kind of grief this level of grief this extent of grief this depth of grief I can't imagine the conversation well they're difficult I mean they they pertain to a lot of anger toward if many people are listening that have gone through psychological treatment, I was a child development specialist. When I tell people I chose a path to understand how did I get to where I was, um, I was an invisible child. And so I was dismissed and overlooked and my whole life. And then I never really understood. I even had my own voice. You know, my first husband said, I love you and we're getting married. And I'm like, well, I don't want to get married. And he, and he was like a force of nature. I love to describe him because he totally changed my life in every possible great way, but also it forced me to grow and find part of my voice that I still didn't really emerge into. And I would say until the last year, this last year has been it's term, you know, when the doctors like, this is terminal, this is a terminal brain disease. And if it was cancer, we could try to remove it, but it's not that. So to hear that and to realize, okay, well, you don't have any time to fool around. This will not be put off for another day. As you said, having the conversation with yourself. And so to be honest with myself and others you know, I still have a living sibling who would like to revise the history that she shares with me. And I have no tolerance for it. And I'm, I'm able to say to her, you're lying to yourself if you think that this and this and this and this were not a result of the neglect we both had. And I understand, because I studied this, that we both have to love the mother that's still alive. And if my mother hears this, my intent is never to hurt her, but that 81-year-old person has yet to apologize for what she says was her, well, I was just young and stupid. I just didn't know any better. But what I saw was a human being that was so narcissistic, she focused on her interests. She's an accomplished classical guitarist. She's an accomplished person in every possible way because she invested that energy into those things, but she chose to neglect her children. And so those are hard conversations. The why my teachers couldn't get me into understanding math because I loved science. I would have been a doctor um, if I could have had the math. Then they might have discovered my seizure disorder and I would have been treated and we wouldn't be here today. So a lot of woulda, coulda, shoulda, ifs, ands, that's the pity party that is human and I'm not allowing myself to bypass Again, that to bypass it is to be a Puritan and a martyr. And I'm not any of those things. I'm a fully formed human. And if I want to have a pity party one day about what I didn't get or what wasn't right or what wasn't fair, I know life's not fair. But damn it, you know, at three and four and five and six and seven, a little child was not seen 
And then when I became a child development specialist, where all I did was look for this in other children, ran a Montessori, I could ferret out and spot a child that had been neglected and abused that had a problem early on because I had been that child. And so I took my wound and I placed it in places that could help others. And that was a great gift. Question for you related to that. Are you allowing people that have words of regret or apologies or things they need you to hear from their words? Are you making room for them to provide those to you? I would love that, but I'm not necessarily receiving them yet. What I'm receiving is an outpouring of tremendous love from all the people that I interacted with since I was a little girl, where I was a friend or I was a colleague, or I was an ally, I would say the hardest people to accept what's happened have been my family members. Because family wants to deny and diminish and make it easy for themselves. Because then it means, oh shit, I'm going to maybe have to show up for this person. Now my sons have been both tremendous, they've been brave, brave, brave men that could step up and say, I show up for you. But it's been hard for my husband because he's not a defender like me. He's not a justice person like me. He would allow a process to unfold versus forcing, I want the next step. So having the right doctors was important. I would love to hear from my mother. I'm sorry. I would love to hear from my sister. It was shitty. And it was shitty when you had to be my babysitter at the age of five, six, seven, and drive me to school and drive me because our mother was never there and our mother didn't care for us. It would be wonderful to hear that that was part of the damage that happened to my brain because I was an invisible person. But I don't expect it to come. If it comes, it will be integrated in a wonderful way. I mean, I would say that the spiritual and psychological work I've done is to find a way to forgive the people that they were and that they are and to not expect something from someone that doesn't have the capacity to give it. But I still allow myself to be angry and not pretend that it didn't happen. You know, children of abuse, children of neglect, children of shame will protect their predator and will cover up the truth. And I choose not to do that anymore. And that's why I'm publicly talking about it. And so my intention isn't to hurt my 81-year-old mother or my 58-year-old sister, but I will not participate in a continued grandiose lie that the life that in the hand I was dealt resulted in the you know, severe brain disorder I had that went untreated, undiagnosed. And then even in my adulthood, um, when symptoms were there, I didn't, I didn't have enough advocacy. So luckily at the age I am now, I got it. You know, the neurologist that's treating me said of all of her referrals, she gets referrals from many neurologists, other um, geriatricians, and she says, I will not treat their symptoms. One out of two of those patients have an undiagnosed, untreated seizure disorder like me. And so this is more prevalent than, it's a, it's a cause. So people that have Alzheimer's and dementia, if they're at 80 years of age, they're not going to be as lucky as I am at 60 because they've already now even further down the road. Um, and my seizure disorder is very common. 50% of all epilepsy is temporal seizures. And luckily, I mean, I find it ironic. People like us for thousands of years have been called shamans and artists and writers. Um, but we've also been depressed and killed each ourselves. Depression and anxiety have been with me my whole life, but I made meaning out of it because of my trauma. I never understood it was actually my brain damage, you know, so to go to a psychologist my whole life and try to make meaning out of my brain 
seizure disorder. That's a fascinating whole other discussion <laughs> um, because they could never, you know, you can't touch it. Definitely. You, know, you can't touch it with anti you know, they have antidepressants and they kind of make me feel a little bit. De- no, nothing's ever made me feel euphoric. Nothing's ever made me feel great, but I've found joy in life, you know, sunsets and, you know, beautiful beach and a great meal and a beautiful conversation and a beautiful silk scarf. You know, I've made meaning and found joy. My beautiful children who've brought me more joy than I could have ever imagined, the love of my husband. But the pervasive underlying issues was always this, these seizures. And now I know it. And so the doctor said, if we can treat the seizures and we can treat the memory loss, you might get another 10 years, just like this, where I can talk. I'll take it any day of the week. Wow. 10 years is awesome. You know, see what we can do to help with keeping your words uh, close by and meaningful. And Um, What I want people or what I was hoping people might take away from your beauty and wisdom that even in the face of death or uncertainty and grief and anger is a willingness to show up for yourself to be in it and it means all of it and that is the hardest most difficult challenging thing it takes the biggest heart the most courage and I don't know why we keep ourselves from ourselves I don't know why you know that's one of my big ponderings is why are we so afraid of of what's there and what's there is changing it's always changing that's why I talk about it as a conversation because whatever is true right now could change and will change and it's not the circumstances around us It's not the things that happen to us or by us or for us. Uh, Life is doing its thing. Life is doing life. But how are you going to be with it, whatever it is, and and still show up for you? Right, show up for you. Exactly. Yeah, you taught me that. Show up for you. Because I kept showing up for everyone else. And I didn't show up for myself. So I can tell anyone right now that while I've thought of killing myself, I stopped because I had to learn that lesson. Show up for yourself, Farah. You know, when someone wants to kill themselves, which I've had thoughts of, it's because you don't value yourself. And then I go back to the teaching you made and the teaching you offered, which is show up for yourself. And that's when I had my click, the aha moment. Well, gosh, if I show up for myself, then I'm not going to kill myself. Because I'm showing up for me. I'm going to save me. Again, an amazing lesson. In a sea of what you talk about, you know, the Buddhists say today that we're filled, this world right now is filled with so many delusions, so many distractions. But what we're really talking about is the deepest intimacy with self. And for those people that are in recovery that might be listening to this, sometimes in the recovery world, we use the term in-to-me-see. And intimacy is just what Jana is talking about. In-to-me-I-now-see. And that's the gift you've brought to me, Jana. And I hope that if anyone's thinking of finding themselves and wanting to be intimate You have to have intimacy with yourself first. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's something I'm still trying to, well, that's not true. That's bullshit. That sounds like I'm not trying. I mean, I am, I'm doing my best to wade through all my own changes and transitions and to be present for them and to see what that looks like and explore what that means. And there's many times where I don't feel like showing up for myself, but I teach it so often to so many people what that means, because it sounds like such a cliche. You are so brave. (laughs) So now I'm trying to do it for myself. Of course. I mean, that's the beautiful part. um, Mom Doss used to say, as the guru, I am still human. I will make mistakes. You will not like me. Because I am pointing the way. And what I love, though, about you as a guru, 
I can truly trust you are Taurus. You are strong. You have an ability to be deeply tenacious and you walk this talk and you write books about it for us to read. I know you can't wait to read your new book, Freedom, because you're talking about exactly what all these metaphysical and psychological and all these other people are talking about but you're really in it it's the it's the real corn on the grill you know your grist the grist of the mill and when anybody was out there i've read thousands of books carl Jung, freud everybody if anybody, everybody, every teacher, blah, 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 lots of big words, lots of philosophical ideals, and all of those are great. They brought me to the moment, though, I could put my corn on the stone and grind it down and make something of it. And that's what you are. You're a master of getting to the kernel of it, the truth. And so all I would say to people is don't spend your retirement fund on psychology when at least try this process because I think it'll get people to where they want to be in their own core self. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I um, really truly appreciate that. I, I would say this last year has been about recognizing that I feel alive when I help others feel alive. Yes. Like, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to do is I feel alive when I help others feel alive. And it took, it's taking a while to just own that and say, you know, this is, this is my purpose in the moment. This is where I'm, this is where I feel alive. And so I look at us in our conversations as just huge, huge, huge gifts and blessings and an honor to have been part of something that was preparing you for something you didn't even yet know and yet became the thing that was the version of yourself the connection to yourself the conversation with yourself that was going to be exactly the one that was needed for what you were about to face like I cannot mind grasp how beautiful and lovely and profound and substantial that is that that gives me such hope thank you well it's given it has deepened my life. I do not feel that I'm now going to die without this deepening. And I hope that, that I'm articulating that well. That's everything. Right. <laughs> the work we did together, you know, I, I do see the pity in other people's eyes. I do see their sadness and that shock and horror. And yet I'm trying to convey that there's been gifts here that I would not have gained what, wait another 10 years, another 20 years, or possibly drop dead, never, ever get to this point. So to be fully human, to be conscious human, awake human, this process that I journey that I took with you and continue to take, it's a walk we do together, has opened and deepened that conversation with self so that my life, as Frankel says, you know, man's search for meaning my meaning of me as a soul has deepened and it's because I now had skills and tools to find a way to contextualize this life experience. So thank you. I love you so much. I love you. Thank you. I'm honored. You're an inspiration. Continue to grow. Continue. Whoever's listening, you know, I, I've done a number of podcasts in different contexts, not, you know, with Jana like this, some from my industry colleagues. And, I, and I've gotten some interesting replies back from people asking questions about whatever. So just know that, you know, Jana and I will be here for you. Anything I can do for another person right now, all I can do is connect people to sources of information. But if it means somebody's struggling or seeking don't hesitate to reach out to Jana and she'll let me know if there's something I can personally answer for someone because like she's taken a bodhisattva vow at a soul level to help others I feel the same way because we're all just helping each other find our consciousness and our meaning to help all sentient beings you know evolve thank you Farah so much for everything
Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I've had a fantastic time. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. For questions or comments, reach me at janalopez.com. And when you're having a moment of identity doubt, just remember that seeing 